I'm so glad you've taken time out of your day to join us here on The Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can keep more of what you make. And you can follow me at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. Coming up later, I want to talk about money that's out there that you've forgotten about or didn't know was yours. I'm going to talk about strategies to reclaim money that has vanished into the thin air. I want to talk about the way most people take a summer vacation, which is by car, which I think accounts for roughly 80% of summer vacations is a car trip instead of flying by air. And I want to mention something to you that could save you over time a substantial amount of money, and that is instead of driving your own vehicle on your summer vacation, rent one. Particularly if you're going in a seven-day block, renting a vehicle could be a lot cheaper than effectively putting all those additional miles on your own vehicle. And let's say you need a larger or smaller vehicle or a different kind for your trip than what you own, renting one can just work out so, so well. Car rental companies are feeling pressure from people not renting cars who used to. They're using Airbnb. I'm sorry, Airbnb. They're using Uber or Lyft instead of renting a car. And that softened up demand for the car rental industry. It has made the deals the best they've been in a long while on car rentals. And not every time, every date, every situation are you going to find a car rental to be cheaper, but usually you will than the effective cost of putting miles on your own car. Figure putting miles on your own vehicle at a minimum, 50 cents a mile. And you think about the trip you're taking, what you can rent a car for. And by the way, if you are going to rent a vehicle, before you show up at the rental counter, there's a couple of things you need to do to turn what would have been a good deal into a bad one. You need to talk to your own automobile insurer and see if you were covered for temporary use of a rental car. And you need to know how they define that. Most car rental companies do is either, I mean, most insurers count temporary use as 14 days, 15 days, or 30 days of a rental car. So as long as you're fitting the requirements of your own automobile insurer, you can rest more easily about taking out all the pseudo overpriced insurance junk that the car rental companies push at the counter. Second thing is you may have a credit card in your wallet that will cover what your own automobile insurance doesn't. Many credit cards cover temporary use of a rental car. Now, an exception, most American Express cards do not. So only a fraction of American Express cards cover temporary use of a rental car. In the case of Visa, Usually, if a card is marked signature on the front, it will normally mean that it includes coverage for rental cars. And then for the MasterCard product, often it'll 
have something on it like world or something like that that will signify that it covers temporary use of a rental car. But don't take that as how you decide. Talk to your credit card company after you've talked to your auto insurer and make sure you have the dual coverage and then you can rest easily saying no to all the various pseudo insurance things the car rental company may try to push on you. And by the way, if you're taking a summer trip weeks and weeks from now, go ahead and book that car rental if it looks like it's a deal. But then the week you're going to take the trip, reshop the car rentals. Because often car rental prices drop significantly in the last week before your rental date. And I find that reshopping my rental car saves me money almost every single time. Michael is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Michael. Hey, Clark. How you doing? Great, thank you. You want to talk about Bitcoin? Uh, that and uh, blockchain technology. Okay, I, uh, so um, we're going to get pointy-headed here talking about <laughs> blockchain technology. So let's try to keep terms... I'll keep it high level. Yes. Yeah. So uh, one thing I wanted to make sure your listeners know is uh, there's this really exciting technology, and it's uh, getting ever more exciting every week that passes by. It's um, called blockchain. It's, uh, it's a new type of data network technology, and it's its first main use case and first implementation was Bitcoin, which was just uh, invented a couple of years ago, 2009. Um, this, this is getting a lot of interest uh, from big companies, Fortune 500, and a lot of startups are going into this space. It's something that um, I did some research and saw that you weren't too excited about, and you kind of maybe warned your listeners from staying away from it, but I'm here to convince you that this is actually uh, a small percentage of your portfolio into some kind of cryptocurrency or crypto technology is, a, I think, a very wise investment long term. Okay, now you got to let me make it a little more in simple English, okay? Because you thought you were doing simple English, didn't you, Michael? <laughs> Okay. okay. All right. So uh, let me let me take a stab. So Bitcoin, for people who are not aware, is, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of like a libertarian idea of non-governmental money. Because what is gold. what is money? Money is whatever we use as something that people honor and recognize as a form of payment for goods and services, or a way of storing money to buy future goods and services. So Bitcoin versus the U.S. dollar, the British pound, the Japanese yen, whatever, is an alternative money that has been around, as you said, for, I didn't realize it had been seven years already, Michael. Oops, you still with me? Uh, Yeah, hold on one moment. That's all right. So the other Um, thing is blockchain. Let me explain that very quickly. Blockchain is basically the um, the backbone of what allows something like Bitcoin to operate, where it is uh, like a record keeper, an electronic record keeper of the transactions of, in this case, Bitcoin. And that's the simplest explanation I can give that I'm sure is only about 90% technically <laughs> correct. 
So your your um, your concern about what I've said about it is. So, uh, so, so I know you're you're um, warning warning your listeners to you know it's a very volatile uh, kind of risky investment. And I was uh, I was just in my opinion, it's definitely worth the potential rewards and the returns that it would uh, allow in the future. And why is that? Why do you feel that way? Uh, I really believe in the technology. Um, this is something that isn't going away. It just can't die. No matter how many articles um, come out about, you know, it's going away or it's failing or it's, you know, it's collapsing, it's still around and it's still getting stronger. More companies are investing into uh, blockchain technology, and it's a, I think it's a very wise investment. All right, so let me tell you where I am on this. So I think the idea of having a payment system that allows it to be very easy for people to move money generally across the country or across the globe is great. It's much lower cost than the traditional way of moving money around the world. Let's say somebody here is buying goods from, uh, I don't know, Thailand, and they're going to sell it in their retail stores. If they're able to, to do it using Bitcoin or something like that, there is a much lower cost for them in transacting in a foreign country than it would be if they're having to convert U.S. dollars into bot, Thai bot and buy items. So I completely get it as a payment platform. Where I don't get it, Michael, is mm-hmm. as an investment vehicle. Uh, exactly. Uh, so, so one of the countries that benefit the least right away from cryptocurrencies is America. Uh, if we're, our, our currency isn't getting devalued 30% every year, or uh, uh, we don't have a collapsing economy like some of these Latin American countries or you know some others, we have... We have a good banking system. We we aren't unbanked like uh, two billion people in the world are that don't have access to bank bank accounts. It's hard to see the benefits right away because we have such a great system here compared to the rest of the world. But eventually, these will be highlighted. Not just so. So I would say the investment portion of this is just what I'm recommending. Everyone benefits from this, regardless if you invest in it or not. It's just. I think it's cool thinking of the idea that you can buy a little piece of this, almost as if you can buy a little piece of the internet. And do you know what on. people use as cryptocurrency in Africa? Cell phone minutes. That's right. Yeah, so this would allow them, instead of sending cell phone minutes, they can send micro payments of cryptocurrency. Uh, and they can send that around the world. So in, I don't want cell phone minutes, but I would love cryptocurrency. Maybe if they want to send that to me, because I can easily, uh, just to let you know, uh, companies are now making you can buy stuff with bitcoin anywhere visas accepted if you have a certain visa card uh there's there's a lot of things coming out to make it more easy to use i I agree with with so much of what you're saying the part that you've seen from me that's made me stand offish is people treating holding bitcoin as an investment and bitcoin has proven to be very volatile as an investment on the other hand using it as a payment system I think makes perfect sense, just like for the African continent, using cell phone minutes as a way to buy and sell things. Since government-issued money in much of Africa is suspect, it's a great alternative. So that's my disagreement with you, Michael, is the idea of it being an investment versus a payment platform. 
Jay joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Jay, you're trying to protect your kid or kids from mischief. How are you trying to do that? Thank you for taking my call, Clark. Um, I'm a little bit late to the eight ball, but um, I have uh, 16-year-old twins, and I'm trying to teach them about their finances. And one of the things that I wanted to do was to freeze their credit. And in looking at your guide on on your website, one of the uh, three major credit bureaus defines a minor for my state as under the age of 16. So when I'm freezing their credit, do I follow the minor rules or do I have them do it as adults? It is a very rare exception to the rule that uh, I don't know if it's just one state or a small handful allow a child's credit to be frozen under the basically the adult method from age 16 forward where most states it's age 18. So in your state, if it says up to age 16, that means at 16, their credit would be frozen just like an adult would in the process. Okay. And it's a great idea to look at freezing a child's credit, which more than half the states now permit, because children are far more likely to be victims of identity theft than adults. Because for criminals, it's a clean sheet identity, and they're not likely to be discovered until a child is normally 18 years old. Right. So it's cheap also, by the way. I'm I'm sorry. I heard you mention with a previous caller that for financial aid applications, they would need to unfreeze their credit. Is that the case? Yes. So once they hit the time they're applying for college, I guess two years from now, they're applying for financial aid packages or next year? Yes. Yes, next year. Next year they will have to temporarily thaw their credit files for that, which is okay. a lot. one of the reasons why a lot of people, once a kid's like a year out from college, say, this is more trouble than it's worth, but you can make that choice how you wish. You want to go ahead and do it and lock it down for that year to keep them protected till it is time for the college aid applications. Victoria's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Victoria. Hello there. So, Victoria, you want to see if I want to buy some money? Oh, sure. <laughs> what are that you stuck with? Way out. Back in 2008, I was introduced to this great idea with the encouragement of some great friends where I worked. They were also uh, involved with this. But the thing to do was buy some Iraqi dinar and watch for it to RV and make a million dollars. You know, I had the first calls about uh, people speculating in Iraqi dinar in 2003. Here we are all this time later, and it's still floating out there. And I don't know that anybody's made money except the people who sold it to people originally. That's my feelings exactly. Uh, I'm afraid to ask, how much in U.S. money do you have tied up in Iraqi dinar? We actually... (laughs) Invested a thousand dollars. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, and uh, in hopes of getting a million dollar return, <laughs> if they had RV'd. Uh, and what I'm wanting to know is, do I hold on to them in hopes that the that this would with the oil and all that? You know, back in 2008, things were really looking good for a moment. <laughs> well. Unfortunately, as you know, there's not really a market in it. And as far as the money you hold, 
I look at it as just money that's sitting there that you should cut your losses and sell it to a currency dealer at whatever the best price is you can get now. Have you tried that yet? No, I haven't. I tried to go online to see if I could find something like that, and it was really uh, seemed to be difficult. Right. So what uh, I would do, I... go online, look for dealers, and then check out with the Better Business Bureau if okay. they have an acceptable rating, and then see if you can turn in any money. If it's basically worth virtually nothing, I think you just hold on to it for now. I'm sorry. I wish I had a one, two, three step for you with the dinar. Glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's devoted to you and you learning ways to save more and spend less and don't let anyone ever rip you off. You can follow me at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. I want to talk to you for a second about the idea of money out there that is yours that is going unclaimed. It is something that is a more common problem than you realize that we get separated from accounts that we've forgotten about, didn't know existed, money that we were due from a life insurance policy, any of a number of reasons that there could be money that you are owed. And you just got to know to ask. Well, there is a simple database that is available for most U.S. states. There are a small number that don't participate, but it's completely free to use and totally free for you to claim the money that is there that they find for you. It's called missingmoney.com. And if you go to missingmoney.com, you may be surprised that there is money hanging out for you. And I'm looking right now for my brother, who I found money for before, and I want to see if he ever did anything about finding, claiming the money that I had found for him. And no, he didn't. It's still here. (laughs) Oh, boy. No good deed goes unpunished. Gary, go claim your money. So anyway, if your state is on missingmoney.com, you're in the money really easy. If you're living in one of the states or have lived in a state that is not part of missingmoney.com, Never fear, there's a little bit more difficult process you can go through that you go to a website called unclaimed.org. Unclaimed.org is run as a co-op of various states, and you can go click on the link to your state, and then you will be able to see if there's money hanging out under your name. And so... Either one, missingmoney.com is the first search, unclaimed.org is the second, and you'll be able to see if there is any money hanging out for you. And usually it will be in the hundreds of dollars most of the time, but there are times it could be a lot more than that. 
and you wouldn't want to be missing money to that degree. And so it's, it's up to you if you want to go use these things, but if you want to be a hero, potentially, to a family member, other than mine who didn't care at all, well, it just takes the little bit of effort, and there you go. Oh, I don't believe this. Okay, this is wild. While I'm talking to you, I just found me on a list of money. Seriously, I'm going to fill out the form and see if it does turn out to be any real money that I am due. I cannot believe that. Okay, another thing. If you ever had an FHA home loan, often there, uh, depending on the area you took out your FHA loan, and if you successfully paid it off, sold the house, it was paid off, there likely is a refund you are due of money paid in, and the FHA has no way of knowing where you are, no way of uniting you with your money. So at HUD.gov, there's a tool where you can go search for FHA refunds that you might have been due. Now, in something I think is despicable, the U.S. Department of the Treasury pulled down the tool I've recommended over the years to find savings bond money that you may have that you've lost track of. This is a very common occurrence, particularly when people are given savings bonds as young kids. And there used to be a very easy-to-use search tool on the U.S. Treasury website where you could find those savings bonds. So the Treasury has decided in its wisdom, they don't want you to be reunited with your money, and it pulled down the search tool. And to me, that is a clark Rageous moment all in itself. Carl is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Carl. Hi, how are you, Howard? Great, thank you. What's going on? I know you've talked about this in the past, about these phones. I, I've been paying almost $800 for my landline phone. Not I'm for the phone to... itself. You mean for your service for, a year? For the service, right, for the service. Okay, you and were scaring so... me there for a minute. <laughs> especially in light of the phones that you were just talking about. But uh, the service, I'm paying almost $800. I don't want to pay $800 any longer. So I know you've talked about alternatives, and I'm looking at which is the best alternative these days. Well, for home service, do you use that home phone any significant amount? I do use it some, yes. Then I think UMA is the standout Grand Slam winner. It hooks in through your internet connection, and you buy an UMA device for about $80, and then once you own it, you have only pass-through junk fees and taxes each month for your phone service, which Uh add up to about $50 a year. Okay. And the UMA, the quality of the UMA service is extraordinary. Okay. And what about if power goes out? Uh, If you're in an area where power goes out a lot, that's a problem. Okay. Uh, How often do you end up without power at your home? Oh, maybe sometimes once a year, twice a year. It's not not, uh, a lot. 
So I've been an UMA customer, I guess, seven, eight years, something like that. And it's been fantastic. And generally, you you have a cell phone too, I guess? I do. I do. So and if I, the power goes I, I, out, you'd still be able to use your cell phone potentially. Right, right. In right, place but, of the UMA. And UMA, you get the unlimited local and long-distance calling. You get caller ID, call waiting, every call feature you could think of for wow. typically, depending on the local junk fees where you live, somewhere 3 to $7 a month. Okay, okay. Well, it, it would be less than $800 a year. So. Absolutely. And yeah. you will have a fee when you port your number if you want to keep your same home phone number. Right. When you port right. from the Monopoly local phone company, to UMA, you'll have a fee. I, uh, gosh, I, I'm going to take a wild stab at it. I think it's forty dollars to, okay. to move your number, one-time fee. But mm-hmm. then, from you keep the same number, people call you just as they always would. All you do is save money and have a better phone service. Well, great, great. Well, all right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Have a great day. And Terry's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Terry. How you doing, Clark? Great, time, thank you. My wife and I have been longtime listeners. Uh, gentleman I work with, Jim, turned us on to you about four years ago, and so well, we, thank we, you, Jim. Wherever listen, you are, we listen a lot. We listen a lot to you on our on our drives down to Florida, whatever. So, and around town when going for walks, podcast work great. So, thank you for taking my call. Certainly. So, where do you live when you're not in Florida? Uh, in Missouri, uh, at suburb of St. Louis. Okay. So yeah, two-day drive. drive for you to Florida. Actually, no. We do it straight through St. Augustine. So it's, uh, it, it all depends upon what we hit in Atlanta. So St. Augustine has become like the hottest thing in Florida, not temperature-wise. I mean, it is the most in place right well, now in the entire state. A, a lot of history. Very, you know, it, it not, Many people don't know it was actually the first settlement in this country. Well, we were just there because uh, my teenager is looking at a college there. Sure. So, yeah, that's, she's uh, a surfer, so she'd be yeah. about three minutes <laughs> from surfing if she went to college there. Well, I learned right when I retired three years ago. So, you're a surfer, dude. Now, uh, well, I've I've got it in my blood, so I can't wait to. It'll be all on a longboard to help me stay afloat. Okay. <laughs> But anyway, uh, hey, the reason why I was calling was last week on one of my walks, uh, listening to one of your podcasts, a gentleman called in, and he, cr- he presented a scenario that was very close to home for me. And the question I have is, when I was working, especially the last few years of my career as a medical sales rep, my salary annual, or my wife and I adjusted you know, salaries for both of us, uh, were such that we could not take out a Roth. We, were, we weren't qualified to do that. That's a good but, problem to have. Well, yeah, at the time. So here we are now, and I spoke to our accountant in that, and we both would be qualified, and we could put up to $6,500 annually, each of us, into a Roth. And my question is, I'm three and a half years retired, and we have, we're pretty much debt-free. Our house is paid for, our cars are paid for, and we have a... a pretty significant investment portfolio with a major investment broker, national one. And so is, is this, would you recommend this? A hundred percent. Okay. And because your wife is still why. working. Yeah. So if you take 6,500 each, even if you move it from your existing 
taxable investment accounts and you move it into a Roth for each of you, a spousal Roth for you, a Roth for her, you're taking money that is subject to tax on the earnings and ultimately you make it tax-free. So there's an advantage to you each year putting that 13000 in and look at this as money that you would use much later in your lives, much later in retirement. So that is a great idea and a great decision to open the Roths and do the 6500 each. You know, if you're taking it from your existing investments, you know, be careful that you don't trigger capital gains. You sure. need the broker's help in making sure you're doing proper tax harvesting so you're not generating okay. tax on what you liquidate to be able to establish the Roth. Or if from her funds that she's earning in her job, you have enough to put the 6500 in each. That would be great. Great. And then who, who who would you recommend to, to open the Roth through and like what funds or anything well, like that? If you love who you're with for investing, you could use them for the Roth. But my my automatic default is go to one of the ultra low cost companies that I've got listed on my investment guide at Clark.com. Okay. And then is there like choices then when you open the Roth as far as what funds you want to have your Roth invested in? I'm a big fan of just keeping it simple and going in the target retirement fund. Okay. Because you're at a point you're already retired. She's going to retire at some point in the next few years. So you go in the year um, closest to when you retired and closest to when she's going to retire for hers. And then the mix of investments is properly conservative enough with still equity investing involved to get the right calibration, hopefully, of risk and reward for both of you through the decades ahead. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Karen is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Karen. So you're selling your home. Yes, Clark. So go ahead and hit me with your question, Karen. Okay, Clark. Um, we own our house outright. We're in the process of selling it, and we we're wondering uh, your thoughts on owner financing. Ah, so you you want to be the bank. I, yes. I love that idea. I've done it before myself. I've done it several times where I've been the bank for a buyer. In fact, I'm doing it right now on one property that I sold where I'm the bank. Now, I will tell you, Karen, I had one experience and I had good down payment. I had 20% down and somebody still defaulted. And sadly, I had to foreclose on that gentleman. And that was no fun at all. I mean, you don't want to 
be in that position where you have to do that. But if somebody doesn't pay, that's what I had to do. But I have I've found that over the years, it's been a great business move on my part to be the bank and do the financing. What's the best way to pick the people? Because I've kind of thrown the idea out a little bit and, and I'm getting some kind of shady people and then some people sound good. And I mean, how, 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 what's the best way to pick? So are you doing a FISBO or are you selling through an agent? I'm selling through an agent. Well, I did FISBO for a couple of weeks and just got kind of bottom feeders. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so I've just listed with an agent, but I'm still trying to make the decision on whether to uh, do the owner financing or not. So all the, all the agent should put in the multiple listing service is possible owner financing. Okay. Or owner financing. You don't want to say owner financing available because then they think, oh, this is just for people who are looking for owner financing. But I've looked at it as a, a part of the marketing of properties that I've sold, and I make more money doing owner right. financing than I can with many other uses of the proceeds from the sale of a home. So on the issue of getting people who are sketchy, as you put it, <laughs> you require um, not as extensive of a credit check that a bank may require, but you definitely do a credit check. And that's part of the application process. Mm-hmm. And you require an application fee so you can, uh, d- so that'll defray the expenses of you having to run the check on someone. Right. And if you, the best thing to do in a case like that is to get as much down payment percent as possible. Now, as you heard me say, I've done 20% before, but Mm -hmm. most people who do owner financing require at a minimum 30% down from the buyer. Wow. And did you just have a real estate attorney attorney handle that for you? Yeah, I can't believe it. You took the words right out of my mouth. Yes. (laughs) Yes, that is core and key to it is that this is not a back-of-the-envelope transaction. This is done by a real estate lawyer drawing up a note properly and recording it properly so that you are fully protected doing the owner financing. But this is, this is a move you either do to improve the odds of selling your home or more frequently because you see it as a, a better return on your money. But it does come with hassle. Like, for example, if the purchaser is absent-minded about paying the mortgage you got to be right on them and giving them notice that that payment is due and make sure up to the full extent of the laws in your case in the state of florida that there are penalties assessed if the rent if the mortgage payment is late what those fees are and how they're charged you're listening to the clark howard show If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast of our show, I'd love it if you'd subscribe. Whatever your favorite podcast app is, we're pretty much there. And whether you love what you hear from me or hate it, take time to write a review. It's how we all learn from each other is from those reviews.